0: We read God's Word in John 16, starting at verse 17 and reading to the end of the chapter. John 16, verse 17. Jesus has just said in verse 16, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, What is this that he saith a little while? we cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her time is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again I leave the world, and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, that yea is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This far we read in the Word of God. We turn our, for our instruction to Lord's Day 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism. As our Lord teaches us how to address God in prayer. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father? That immediately, in the very beginning of our prayer, he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. Namely, that God has become our Father in Christ, and will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith, that our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is here added, which art in heaven? lest we should form any earthly conception of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. In the passage we read, beloved, Jesus brings to an end his discourse with the disciples in the upper room. After the Last Supper had been administered and the Lord's Supper instituted, he's been teaching them what he is about to do. They don't understand it yet. Even they're telling him at the end of chapter 16, "Lo, now we understand plainly, leads him to ask the question, do you sure that you really understand plainly? They will later when the Holy Spirit is poured out, but he's telling them what he is about to do, why he must die, and why he must rise again, and the benefit for them, for you and for me, of his death and resurrection. As the mediator of the covenant, he must leave, he must lay down his life on the cross, atone for sin, confirm the covenant, form its basis, and then ascend again, arise and ascend So that at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, He intercedes for you and for me and blesses us with all the blessings of salvation. We saw last week that in prayer, we come to enjoy and experience the deep, intimate covenant fellowship that He provides for us by His death and resurrection. Now, Jesus is speaking to them in the discourse primarily about why He will leave and how He will come again. But in that context, he gives, in the passage that we read, an explanation, really, his own uh, interpretation of what it is to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he touches on really what our Lord is teaching us to do when he says, when ye pray, say, our Father which art in heaven. And so from verses 23... Through 27, there's instruction here about praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Briefly, as our catechism points out, and as will be spelled out in more detail this evening, we are taught in this address, to whom we pray. We must pray to the one true God as he manifested himself in his word. That was one of the requisites of a proper prayer. Now, let's show that as we begin our prayer in addressing Him, our Father, which art in heaven. But to address Him as our Father and yet to forget or not confess that He is our Father for Christ's sake, to come to Him in prayer and not come to Him in and through Christ. This is wrong, and this is what our Lord is warning us against when he says, pray in my name, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. So as we come this morning to our master and to the school of prayer in which the great teacher teaches us how to pray, we learn to pray to the Father in Christ's name. That's my title this morning, praying to the Father in Christ's name. First of all, let's answer to whom we pray. Secondly, in whose name do we pray? And finally, with what attitude do we pray? Our Father, which art in heaven. Even the catechism by its division of its explanation of that Address into two questions and answers indicates that there are two main points to notice here. On the one hand, God is our Father, and the second place, He's in heaven. And here are two beautiful realities that you and I must understand as we come to God in prayer. The first reality, the foundational reality, is that God is our Father for Christ's sake. Jesus has been referring to him in this discourse as the Father and as Jesus' Father. And we're reminded what we're taught in Lord's Day 9 that this Father, the Father that we confess as part of the Trinity, part of the triune being of God, this Father, the Father of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, our Savior, is for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. We're confronted once again with the reality that Jehovah's fatherhood is the perfect and the exemplary fatherhood. There are people in the church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have a hard time calling God Father. So... Horrible are the connotations of father because perhaps of what their own earthly father was, the mean man, the unreasonable man that he was, that they say, I'm to come to God now and call him father and expect to receive from him all things necessary for soul and body. Indeed, that's what our Lord is teaching us And in order for us to do it, or the brother or sister in such a circumstance to do it, remember that my father and your father is not the pattern of fatherhood. He or she may have been a good father, but still is not the pattern God's fatherhood is. And therefore, let's remind ourselves what it means that God is father and how he treats you and me. Father. That His Father means that He made us His children. That He did so consciously and willingly. It wasn't just He was a child I wasn't quite expecting at this time in my life. But He determined to make us His children. When therefore, for the sake of Christ we became his children, he said to us, now you must know that the death of my son on the cross was the supreme proof of my love for you, and I will love you forever. As said Jesus in verse 27, for the father himself loveth you. And so we come to God calling Him Father in the confidence that He will, that He does, that He has loved us and this love will not change. And then there's more to it. Inasmuch as He is our Father, we have a right to His name. We have a right to His continued care and provisions. and We have a right to an inheritance that He is preparing for us in heaven, our Father, one word, really, Father, but a concept, that is, a word in which is packed and condensed so many thoughts, beautiful realities. He is our Father in Christ. We need yet to explain in what sense He is our Father and why this is for us a source of hope and comfort. In two senses, God has become our Father. But in both of them, underscore the fact that you and I, by nature, were not born into his family. We were born into the family of Satan, dead in sin and trespasses, not resembling Jehovah God, not having a right to his name, to his love, to his inheritance. And he went, as it were, to the adoption agency and looked over having planned this, of course, in his council, looked over all those children of the devil and said, this one, and 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 that one, I'm taking home, and I'm calling them mine. And he adopted us, legally provided the basis for us to become no longer Satan's children, but his children. And then he did something. This is the second sense in which we are his children. He did something that no adoptive father can ever do. He said, I'm going to take that child whom I've adopted, who has every legal right to my love and favor, protection and support, and I'm going to make that child look like me. And he regenerated us by his word, And by His Holy Spirit. So that now He lives in us. We're His Father in two senses. In a way that no human can be a child or a father of another. In both senses. Either we are in the one sense that we gave the child his or her life. Or we are in the other sense that we adopted the child to be ours. But it is not possible that a human be a father in both senses. So showing how marvelous and how unique the fatherhood of God is and proving the point. His is the pattern. Mine, yours, is only the reflection. Let it be. But it's nothing more than The reflection. Now, there's one more beautiful thing to underscore. And that is that in both senses, His adopting us and His begetting us again in Jesus Christ, we are His children for Christ's sake. I didn't come to God, nor did you, and say, God, you'd like to be my father. If you understood me, if you understood what a fine person I am, you would want me in your family. I did not do that. I could not do that. He said, I chose that for Christ's sake. We're a child of my arch enemy. As a child of Satan, you had no right to be mine, but I sent my only begotten Son whom I did not adopt, but He was my Spirit and my flesh and my being. I sent Him to the death of the cross. He laid down His life for you. He shed His blood. He died. He did what the sinner needed. He atoned. He provided the basis for us to be legally adopted. His blood was the red ink as it were on Jesus, on Jehovah's adoption papers. Signing those papers and making our adoption real. Adoptions after all take place in courts of law. When we speak of God adopting us, we're speaking of something he did in a legal sense. There has to be a legal basis. Some Right, some justice. The death of Christ was that. And then His regenerating of us is nothing else than His working in us the life of the resurrected Jesus Christ Himself. He's your Father. And that's the very heart of the gospel of grace. Our father, we're taught to say, so that I look at you and you look at everyone else in the congregation, and we look at each other and say, We share a common heritage. We're graced with the same grace. We were in the same despair and in the same misery, children of the devil, but now the Lord has made for himself a large Family. And you're in it with me. We have a hope. We have an inheritance that's being prepared for us. We have a life. A divine life that's common to us. What a blessing we have all been given. Our father. But he's not on earth. Real father isn't just an earthling Our real Father, the pattern of all fatherhood, is a heavenly Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. In the whole of the discourse, Jesus has not used the word heaven, but he's referred to the reality of it. I'm going to go somewhere and you can't follow me. You're not going to see me for a while. Later you will see me. He's referring both to his death on the cross so that they can't, can't be with him, and the burial of his body, so they can't see his body, and his resurrection, so they see him again. But he's also referring to another, a greater event, that of going to the Father. And he speaks that way, ye shall see me because I go to the Father. There he's referring to the reality of heaven. Now heaven is a place. It's not just a state of mind. It's not just something you have on earth when you feel that all is going well with you. How awful if that was all heaven was. Because it changes, doesn't it? If that was all heaven was, we'd go from heaven to hell every time we have a good day and then a bad day. Every time we're on cloud nine and then every time we have some sorrow or grief overwhelm us. But it is not so. Heaven is a place not here on earth but exalted above heaven. Earth. We don't know where. We'll never find it on a map or on a globe. Space explorers will never find where heaven is. It is nevertheless a place where God dwells in all the fullness of his glory. Where Jesus Christ is now in his body at the Father's right hand. And to which every one, adopted and regenerated by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, to which every such one goes when he or she dies. It's your home. We're not there yet. It's my home. The Lord is preparing me for it yet. That is where God is. What these two truths put together mean that God is both our Father and is in heaven is that He is able and willing, able and willing to provide us with everything that we need. And it's in that consciousness that we come to Him in prayer and make this confession on our lips. Our Father which art in heaven is the opening of a prayer but it's a confession that we are making. We are conscious of the relationship in which we stand to God by his grace in Jesus Christ. Conscious of the glory of God that he has and that in prayer we're coming as close an earthling can come into heaven itself. And we're going to glimpse his glory as he revealed it in Jesus Christ. We make a confession here. The a reason why before we pray, we need to pause. Of course, there are spontaneous prayers. That's fine. But before our formal prayers, before our family prayers, before our congregational prayers, instead of beginning to utter words without thinking of what we're doing... We need to stop, and we need to ask ourselves, am I ready to make the confession that I am about to make this God whom I address in prayer is my Father, and He is glorified in greatest majesty in heaven? We can come with that confession on our lips and in our hearts because our Lord Himself, the great teacher, has told us it's so. And he's telling his disciples. It's in the same discourse that he said to them, I go to prepare a place for you. He speaks to them as children of the Father. Are you conscious then that God is your Father for Christ's sake? And that in heaven, ruling over all things, He also cares for you. This is not only a confession of faith, but it's a confession that we must make at the beginning of prayer. Our prayer ought to begin with an address. That's one implication or practical point that Jesus is driving home here. Not only what the address should be, but that we begin with an address. And you say, why? God knows by heart. I could be speaking to Him. I don't need to say God, Father, every time I go to my Father and I begin speaking to Him sometimes without calling Him Father. He knows I'm speaking to Him. He knows I know He is my Father. Why must I begin prayer with an address? And the answer is less from God's perspective that He needs to know we're talking to Him and more from my and your perspective that With this address, we set the tone for prayer. And that's what the catechism means. Immediately in the very beginning of our prayer, you might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer. If you do not have confidence and reverence as we approach Jehovah's throne of grace then don't pray. Don't pray yet. If lacking confidence and reverence, you aren't in a position to pray, then stop. Don't just go on with your life and say, well, it's no use anyway. Stop. Contemplate the beautiful truths of the gospel. Put yourself in the frame of mind to come to God with the right attitude and tone. So, we must begin with an address, and the address must exalt God, but the address really indicates that we're ready to pray to Jehovah. Must our address use these words only? May I begin a prayer, Almighty God. May I begin a prayer, Merciful Father. May I begin a prayer with some other words. The answer is, yes, I may begin a prayer with other words. They must be words, though, that adhere to the principle our Lord teaches. That this God to whom we pray is the greatest, the most exalted, the most majestic, the most glorious. And therefore, I know that in coming to him, I will be heard and I will have what I seek. Our Father, which art in heaven. Having explained to whom we come, the question is, but how can a sinner do that? And the answer is, because we come in Christ's name. That's what our Lord is teaching his disciples in the section we read. Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name. He will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. What is it to pray in Christ's name? Two things. In the first place, it is to base our petitions on the atoning work of Christ. It's to recognize that whether we ask for bread or for forgiveness of sins... Whether we ask for guidance and direction in making a life choice, a, a major life choice, or whether it's in coming to Him and asking for spiritual protection from all our enemies, we acknowledge I'm not worthy of any of these things. But I look to the cross of my Lord and Savior as having earned for me this right. That, first of all, is to pray in the name of Christ. In other words, it is. An activity of faith. But our Lord meant something more. He meant also that as we come to God in prayer, we do so in the authority of Christ. This authority, as I'll spell out later in more detail, is not going to be an arrogance. It's not going to in any way diminish from the reverence that we owe God. ought increase that reverence but we come to God conscious that we have a right to be in his presence it's not just that the things we're going to ask for we have a right to for the sake of Jesus Christ but we came into his presence do you remember children In Old Testament kingdoms, especially ungodly kingdoms, you came into the king's room. You might be the king's wife. Think of Esther. You might be his wife. But if he did not want to see you in his throne room at the moment, he could have your head cut off. And when Esther came, she looked to see, would he hold out the golden scepter? Does he even want me here? Guess what? Our father is the king of kings. But he will always hold out his gold scepter. You'll never have to worry about him saying to his child, I don't want you in my presence. But to know that, come in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, understand that prayer itself is a privilege. To enter the throne room of God is a privilege but it's a privilege afforded to me because of what Christ has done for me in dying and making me His child. Oh, I will come reverently then, but I'll come without fear. Pray in Christ's name. That point also sheds light on that little pronoun Our Father, which art in heaven. For I'm now reminded of the fact that those with whom I pray can only be those for whom Christ died. If you're ever on a bus and the bus crashes, if you're ever on a plane and the plane is going down, you may pray the Lord's Prayer, by all means. Pray it out loud. By all means. But don't think that the Lord's prayer is a sort of generic prayer that absolutely any person can join in in praying. If Christ has not died for me or another, there's no right to pray it. But when we come In Christ's name, a whole congregation here, and then the universal body of Christ over the length and breadth of the earth, then we all come, a particular group, all come in the confidence. God will hear and answer. Our Lord is teaching his disciples to do that, and he says something rather striking. Until now, you've never prayed in my name, he says to them. And you ask the question, as I do, what does he mean by that? Well, the point is not that they've been praying wrongly. The point is that they're at the very end of the Old Testament era. They haven't yet seen Jesus Christ die. They haven't yet seen His shed blood. They haven't, although they're confessing and understanding that He is the Messiah and the Mediator, they don't have a full understanding of how that's true They've prayed on the basis of other realities. Read the psalm sometimes and see how many uh, phrases the psalmist uses as a basis for God to hear his prayer. For thy mercy's sake, Psalm 6, verse 4. For thy goodness' sake, Psalm 25, verse 7. For thy name's sake, Psalm 25, verse 1. And there are many others. They've prayed to God, have the disciples and other Old Testament saints, with a view to the coming mediator, the picture of whose shed blood they saw there every time they went to the tabernacle or temple and offer their sacrifices. But not yet have they understood that Jesus Christ and his name was the name in which the psalmist prayed, was the manifesting of the mercy and the goodness of God on the basis of which the Old Testament saints made their prayers. And therefore our Lord is teaching us once again to come to God in a confidence for Jesus' sake or in Jesus' name. And this too, these phrases ought to be a part of our prayers. Only not just words tacked on automatically or without thinking, but words that we say in the consciousness of what we're doing. Christ earned the right and privilege to approach the Father. Now here, I want to drive home, in keeping with our serious theme, that the great teacher is teaching us. What is he teaching us? Well, how to pray. But in addition, he's teaching us that therefore he is the only and the complete Savior. That I may not pray to the Father in the name of any other. I may not pray in my own name. I may not pray in the name of Mary. I may not pray in the name of St. Peter or St. Paul. I may pray only in the name of Christ and you know why it is because neither Peter nor Paul nor Mary nor I myself nor you have a perfect righteousness inherent in us that can be used as a reason to say the Lord will receive me into his very presence but Jesus Christ has that perfect righteousness our Father which art in heaven I come in the name of the one, only, true Savior who laid down His life. That is what our Lord and Savior is teaching us. Let this then be part of the foundation of your prayers, beloved. The whole point of Lord's Day 46 is not just to teach us right words or right doctrines, but it's to teach us right, Practice in prayer. Let this be the foundation of your prayers. I come to the one true God and He wants me in His prayer room. Christ earned the right. He will hear. He will give. He will give me all things necessary for body and soul. This is the promise of Jesus Himself. "'Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it.'" And of course, there are things I may ask in Christ's name. We really noticed this point last week, and we'll notice it even more when we get to the fourth petition. What I may ask for in Christ's name, and the Father will give it, is every spiritual grace and blessing that Christ earned for me on the cross.'" What I may ask in Christ's name is my daily bread, but what I may not ask for in Christ's name is anything I want just for me, anything that I think will make my life a happier life, apart from how I would serve God with it, anything that would build up my kingdom, anything that would make me rich. No, our Lord did not die to earn those things. And so I don't ask for them. I don't ask for them in Christ's name. What I do ask for in Christ's name are the things that God has commanded me to ask for and Christ has certainly earned by his death on the cross. And therefore the promise of our teacher is sure and true. He will give it you. All of this now affects our attitude. Attitude. Drive home this point more specifically in a few moments, but by and large, we do not live in a country and in a society in which good attitudes are promoted. We'll never learn from the world the kind of attitude you must have and I must have to come to God in prayer. But our great teacher at the right hand of our Father teaches us a right attitude. And to our Heavenly Father, attitude matters. Children, that matters to your earthly father too, doesn't it? You come to dad with a sort of cocky tone in your voice. And he doesn't drop everything he's doing and saying, My child, I'm to serve you. I'm to do exactly what you want. I'm to give you everything you want to make you happy. I'm so sorry. I haven't done that yet. You come to your dad with some cockiness in your voice? There ought to be chastisement. Attitude matters. Now, if I as a sinner am coming in prayer before him who is holy and sinless i a creature before him who is the creator an earthling before him who is heavenly how much more does not attitude matter there are three things about our attitude that that ought to characterize our attitude that our Lord drives home when he teaches us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. Number one is confidence, number two is reverence, and number three is love. As regards confidence, first of all, I've said already most of what needs saying. We come to our Father who loves us and has promised to give. We come to our Father who is in heaven and is able to give. I may, you must come in confidence. Not the confidence that in this past week I've tried a lot harder, so I should get what I appear not to have gotten yet, though I prayed for it, but the confidence that for Christ's sake he will hear and answer. Secondly, and in need of a little more explanation, reverence. Holy respect for and awe of this God. If society is not going to help us learn the right attitude, it certainly is not going to cultivate in us true humility. True humility is not expressed in phrases like it's up to you, no one else is going to help you, it's up to you. Demand, assert yourself. I'm not denying that maybe there's times in earthly society when we need to do those things. I'm saying that as we come to Jehovah God in prayer, that must not be our attitude. Jehovah is not our daddy. He's our father. His love is an exemplary and a perfect love. But we're not coming to him in prayer to joke around and have a good time. Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask all things, is not our big buddy Our casual friend, an attitude of reverence, must understand what a difference there is between us and God and how the bridge of that great gulf is not one we created but one God himself provided in Jesus Christ. And then it's not only in prayer, but in all of worship. In an all of life that we're going to be reverent. Our Father which art in heaven. I owe thee my all. Every crumb of bread I have is a gift from thee that I didn't deserve. But it's a testimony to thy love and thy faithfulness to me. The promise of life everlasting, and that everything that befalls me in this life prepares me for it, my Father, is an amazing promise. We come to God in that confidence and consciousness, and so we come reverently. And now, once again, I say, so pause. Before rushing into prayer, pause. Are you reverent? Are you confident? Are you really ready to pray? We're going to do that in a moment. Before the closing prayer, we're going to pause. And in your mind, think of the question as I will in mine. Am I ready to do this? In the third place, the attitude that is promoted is one of love. And love encompasses gratitude and thanks to God for all He's given and done for us in Christ I love Him above all. That's why I'm coming to Him in prayer. And then there's that pronoun, our, again. I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I'm not going to pray, give me this day my daily bread, but I have my brothers and sisters in mind, give us this day our daily bread. It isn't just my sins I want forgiven, but forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It isn't just my spiritual need for defense from evil, but lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, And in love for them, I'm going to pray for me and for them. I seek not my own kingdom, the doing of my own will, the glorifying of my own name, but thine, heavenly Father, the glorifying of thine and the name of our Father is glorified, not just in what he does in my life, but ours. And all of that, our Lord teaches us, When he said, when ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, amen. We've been taught, Heavenly Father, to pray with confidence, boldness, but reverence and deep love because Thou art our Father for Christ's sake. Now in every prayer that we utter the rest of our life, whether it be in church or at home, in the car or on our bed as we sleep or prepare to sleep, whether it be a prayer that we've thought out and carefully planned or one that's spontaneous, whether it's long or short, Give us the confidence and the humility and reverence that we need, knowing that thou art our Father in Christ, and thou wilt much less deny us what we need than our earthly Father would fail to give us bread and clothing. Therefore, in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, bestow on us every good gift, for Christ's sake, amen.